All right, guys, let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Can anybody tell me what the word assimilation means? Cultural assimilation. Anybody want to give it a shot? Yes, sir. Okay, it could involve that, but not necessarily completely forgetting. But yes, it's, it involves the process of integrating into a new culture. Okay? Assimilation, what the word assimilation means. So assimilation is that. It's the process of integrating into a new culture. All right, so there are pros and cons to assimilation. All right? A pro, well, increased economic opportunities. If you go to a country and you learn that language and you go to their schools and you form relationships with the people in that country, it's going to be successful for you. All right? You're going to make more money. You're going to have more opportunity if you assimilate in those areas when it comes to language and education. What about... Is it also improves your social integration. It's going to be easier for you to become a part of that culture when that culture sees that you're interested in joining the culture, that you're interested in learning their language, that you're interested in learning their customs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, what could be some cons of assimilation? Well, loss of cultural heritage, maybe. I know that in my case, probably Nico's children won't have the same heritage that I had because I'm already one generation away. So I, was, I learned Spanish because my mom didn't speak English, so I had to speak Spanish to her. But then I learned English in school. And then when it comes to Nico and my kids, they spoke Spanish first, but when they got into school and they talked to me in English, I would respond in English, and then therefore they don't have the same language as I had. And then their children is, might even dilute even more. So there's a loss of that, of that culture. And also, it could be some sort of identity crisis, right? Where you're not fully of one culture, and then you're not fully of your own culture anymore. These are just things that happen when it comes to assimilation. Now, to assimilate into a new culture, or how much you're going to assimilate, it's something usually left to the family to decide of how they're going to do that when they arrive to a certain country. In today's lesson, we're going to see how and why King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to assimilate some of the Jewish, young Jewish nobles into the Babylonian culture. However, in this case, it's not going to be voluntarily. He's forcing them to assimilate. Let's read today's passage. Let's start with verse 1, just to give us context. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels and the house of God, of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure of his God. We, we went over that last week. Today we're going to focus on the following verses. Verse 3 says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family, and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, 
endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration, ration of food from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Last week, we started the book of Daniel. Daniel was written towards the end of the exile. 75 years since Daniel got into captivity, he's writing this to the Jews to remind them what they went through and all the prophecy that he received from the Lord for future to come, for the future to come. We went over last week the conquest of Jerusalem and the first exiles that left from Judah to Babylon. Amongst them was Daniel and his friends. We learned when that happened, right? When did this happen? It happened under the reign of King Jehoiakim around 605 BC. We also learned why it occurred. Can anybody remember why did the Lord give his own people to King Nebuchadnezzar for judgment? Yes. They fell into idolatry. Years and years and years of idolatry. Since, since they went into the promised land, after, jo after Joseph dies, sorry, after Joshua dies, they just, in the times of judges, they just fall into it, they repent, and God blesses them, and then they fall into it again, and they repent, and God blesses them all the way to king, to the kingdoms of Jotham, Hezekiah, and Manasseh, where at that point, the sin of idolatry and rebellion got to a point that God started telling him through the prophets, like Jeremiah, you guys got to repent. And you guys got to repent soon because if not, I'm going to give you over to the Babylonians. 137 years of prophecy and guess what? They continued in the rebellion. They continued to reject Yahweh and his law. And that is why he gave King Jehoiakim in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. But most importantly, what did we learn last week? We learned that God, who was in control the whole time, he's in control of the exile. He's in control over human history. He's orchestrating all the events to discipline his children as a loving, as a loving father that he is. So I've kind of outlined chapter one for us to give us an idea. But before that, go ahead. I want to give you a map of where Babylonia was. Babylon, and if you see, if you can see Jerusalem there, we're next to Egypt, go a little bit north, that's Jerusalem, and then right across by the Persian Gulf, and those, the Euphrates and, and, and Tigris rivers, that's where Babylon is, for those that wanted a visual representation, and then keep on. Just to recap, these are just some of the kings that I mentioned last week of why their actions led for, to, directly to the exile, and it started with the kingdom of Jotham. Ahaz and Hezekiah. And next slide. So this is kind of like an outline that I created for chapter one so we can have a visual of what we're going to be looking at for the next couple of weeks. So we're looking at God's sovereignty over human history and we're looking at his servant's faithfulness. Last week we talked about the conquest of Jerusalem. 
We talked about the when, which was in verse 1, and we talked about the why, which was in verse 2. Today, specifically, we're going to focus on the Babylon, the Babylon assimilation. And I've broken it down into three parts. Go back real quick. The orders to assimilate, verses 3 to 4. The benefits of assimilation, verses 5. And the new identity in verses 6 through 7. Last week, the theme that we went over was the Lord is sovereign over human history. The Lord is sovereign over human history. But today's theme, after reading our passage, I want you to have in your mind is the Lord, trust, the, trust in the Lord as he is sovereign over your life. Trust in the Lord as he is sovereign over your life. Let's take a look at the first section of the Babylon assimilation. We're going to look at the orders to assimilate. Let's go to verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. We begin with the king. Who is the king? Nebuchadnezzar. And what does the king do? He orders his high, the chief of his officials, Ashpenaz, right? The chief of his officials, various translations translated to the chief of his officials, the commander of his court, the chief eunuch, the master of his eunuchs, chief of his court officials. Just know that Ashpenaz was a high-ranking servant of the king. And as a high-ranking servant of this king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king trusts him dearly. And this servant was willing to do whatever the king asked him to obviously honor his position, to keep his position, to obey King Nebuchadnezzar. So what are the commands that King Nebuchadnezzar gives to Ashpenaz? Well, the first is to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the sons of the nobles. Some of the Judean captives are going to come, but they have to be specific Judean ca these, the captives. They have to be sons of Sons of means of a people, the people of a nation conceived as of children, probably with an emphasis on the people being descendants of a common ancestor. So when he mentions, when Daniel mentions the sons of Israel, he's mentioning all of Israel. But specifically, we know that these will be nobles and royal bloodline from the kingdom of Judah. Not Israel, but Judah. These captives needed to be of royal bloodline, of the ruling class. Nobles in the Hebrew here is ruling class. So what royal line are we talking about here? Well, it could have been relatives of King Jehoiakim, the king that was reigning when, the, when Nebuchadnezzar came in. Josephus, which is a Jewish historian, he actually has these boys, Daniel, his descendants of Hezekiah. They could have been sons of the rich, of the wealthy, of Judah, who had a lot of lands and livestock and were the ruling class. But these were the ones that Ashpenaz needed to look for as ordered by the king. Now, not that the story is about Ashpenaz, but can you just imagine having that job, right? Hey, uh, you that were exiled and left your land and probably we killed some of your family members and... Travel hundreds of miles. Uh, now I need you to come with me, right? <laughs> it's not an easy job, all right? Poor, poor Jew, the, the Judeans that were there. It's like what was going through their mind is like we just traveled. We, do, we, we, we were just captured. We're of royal bloodline. They know who we are. What do they want with us? 
Just what, what can go through your mind? Well, they, they, want us, they want to kill us because they want to prevent any rebellion from any of the bloodline to claim kings, kingship and go against us, right? Or they can be thinking, well, they're going to throw us in prison while we're here to make sure that there's no rebellion. They're going to... I said kill already, right? Yeah. Regardless of the fact, these royal bloodline from the kingdom of Judah were coming to the palace. And, and guess what? It was no accident. God is in control even in this simple order as Ashman is going and seeking those of royal bloodline to come to the king's palace. As we mentioned last time, this book is about the sovereignty of God over human history. And God had already thought of this plan 40 years ago. Listen what the prophet Isaiah said to the king Hezekiah. 2 Kings 20, verses 17 through 18. You can read it up at the, at, in, the, in the slides. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away. And they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. There was no accident. Didn't catch God by surprise. God is always in the background. He's always orchestrating his plan, his divine plan in the past. And he's orchestrating his divine plan in our lives today, right now. Praise the Lord for that. In this specific command... We see that the king gives him seven characteristics to look for when choosing these sons of Israel. Let's see them in verse 4. Seven characteristics. Verse 4. He wants youths who in, whom, in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. So, okay, king, uh, king Nebuchadnezzar tells Ashpenaz, I need you to go and get some of the royals from the, Ju the Judean captains, but they have to have these characteristics. The first one, young. These men needed to be of young age, most likely around 13 years of age. The Hebrew for youth here means a child, Normally prepubescent, a person of either sex, male or female, in rare cases it extends to adolescence. But, according to Plato, the education of Persian youths began in their 14th year, and it's reasonable to assume that the Babylonians commenced the training of young people at about the same age as the Persians. So you have Daniel and his friends at the age of 14, 15 years of age. Why youth? Why does the king want the youth? Well... Young people tend to be more progressive and adapt to change better than old people. Youth are also more apt to believe what they're told and to e be easily manipulated. That's why he wants the youth to target them when they're young. In indoctrination cases where you have um, countries like North Korea or Cuba where they control the media, they control what's said, you... you they teach communism at 
a baby age where they have the cartoons and they make everyone in every other country in the world look bad and they grow up thinking this. So it's part of their plan to keep the people under control of communism and they very targeted youth. And also doing some research on this, like the Hitler youth was a big part of all these Nazis coming into the army because he comes in and he takes away all the Boy Scouts, all these other organizations, and he forces kids to join Hitler Youth and indoctrinates them when they're young. So when they get older, it was just a matter of life that this is normal. It's just about to happen, killing Jews or, or anybody that was not part of the political party was a normal uh, way of life. So that's why he's wanting the youth. The next, he says, the next characteristic he mentions is he wants them to have no defects. No defects. The same Hebrew word used here for defect can be found in Leviticus and gives us a better understanding of what it means. Leviticus 21 verses 16 through 18 states, the Lord says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. For no one who has a defect shall approach. What are these defects? A blind man or a lame man or who has a disfigured, someone who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb. So if you were blind, if you were lame, if you were crippled, if you had a disfigured face, if you were deformed in any way, you were not chosen to be in the king's court. You were not chosen to represent the king. Therefore, you needed to be without a defect. So... A lot of you just look at your feet and you disqualified. All right. No, I'm just kidding. The next characteristic that we see here is that he, those young boys had to be good looking, of great appearance. Now, some of the prideful in the room, guys and girls, just said in their minds, I totally would qualify for sure. That's just me right there. But not so fast because the next quality that they're looking for is that you need to be intelligent. So good luck with that. Yeah. So... The next characteristic is showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. Showing intelligence here means to be prudent, to be able to apply what is learned. Wisdom here means the ability to apply knowledge, experience, understanding, or common sense to all aspects. So the king was looking for prudent young men who were able to apply what they were learning quickly in their lives. Okay? That is what... Showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom means these people had to be sharp because we're going to teach you something. You're going to be a leader, as we were going to read in a couple of uh, verses. We need to know that whatever we teach you, you're a quick learner and you got to put it to practice. The next characteristic is they are endowed with understanding. This means they have to possess the ability to be skilled and proficient in a specific activity. They needed to be good at the tasks presented to them. And last, one of the last ones, this, it says they had to have discerning knowledge. What does that mean? Well, they were able to perceive and reason basic facts and even sometimes, in, those, in their cases, use supernatural powers from their gods to be able to discern reality or dreams. They were seeking basically, in a nutshell, spiritual people that were connected to their God. And lastly... Those who had the ability for serving at the king's court. These were include hard workers, go-getters, quick learners, showing leadership to rule in the king with his, to, to rule in the kingdom, 
who would assimilate quickly into the Chaldean language and religion and culture. You see, even pagan cultures, this idea of all these characteristics of good leaders, even the pagan cultures knew what a good leader would look like, but it's, it wasn't a Babylonian thing. Don't get, they don't get the credit like, oh, they knew how to choose their leaders. No, this is, this is, these are God's standards. And these are God's standards. They're placed by God in all of humanity in our consciousness. They, we know what good and evil is. We know what a good leader looks like. What about it? Because God does that. I mean, this is the kind of man that's described by King Solomon in Proverbs 22, 29. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Or in Ecclesiastes 7, 19, he says, Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So he was looking for men, young boys, that would have these characteristics at their young age. Because he knew that if they had it at their young age, they would develop into the leadership that King Nebuchadnezzar was looking for. So he ordered Ashpenaz to bring some of the sons to the palace, but he also ordered Ashpenaz to do something else. And that's found at the end of verse 4. Let's go there. At the end of verse 4 it says, And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Again, here's Ashpenaz again. Well, uh, young boys, we just captured you. We took away from your home, from you, separated you from your family. Now I got to kind of teach you our ways. I got to teach you our language, and I got to teach you our religion. I got to teach you everything about us. Wasn't an easy job, but he did it. He feared King Nebuchadnezzar, and we're going to see why he did it and why he feared Nebuchadnezzar. He feared Nebuchadnezzar with his life, and we're going to see that next week when we talk about the, the first test that Daniel and his friends encounter in the, in the, in the new palace. But what specifically were they to learn? Bob File, he states that the word used here for Chaldeans referred to the sages of, and men of wisdom who would serve the king. So he says he ordered them to teach the literature and language of the Chaldeans, basically the literature of their religion, the literature of those that would study astrology and sorcery and divination and all of those sorts, right? And you're thinking, hold on a second. What is, what is Daniel and his friends going to do? They're going to be taught another religion that's not their own. They're going to be taught things about sorcery and witchcraft. That's, that's not what they do. What, what, what are they going to do? A commentator stated, he claimed that the Hebrews studied the Babylonian religion, not that they might follow it themselves, but in order to pass judgment upon it, and refute it. That's why they were there. Now, come to be practical about these things. Some of you might be in school and they're learning about things that are super ungodly. Evolution. Self-help. Like, oh, we're all good inside and it's all about you and your happiness or, or rejecting the sanctity of life, right? Or gender saying, ah, it's not absolute, it's fluid, you can be whatever you want. All these things that you got to be hearing, right? What I tell you guys is take courage when you learn about these things. Why? So you can understand what unbelievers are thinking so that you can refute it with what the truth of God says. Just like Daniel and his friends did. Don't feel bad. Don't feel guilty. The Lord is sovereign even in that. The fact that you were in that classroom and heard that lecture, God is sovereign. And you and all of us 
when we're in our workplace, when we're in the world where, where the world doesn't have our beliefs, we're able to hear and why they believe what they believe for what? So that us as believers can counteract it with the truth, in love with the word of God. What happens if asked for your opinion in those situations? Give it clearly. Be bold and use scripture to acknowledge what you believe as that is the final authority. And guess what? If they make fun of you, they reject you. They're not rejecting you. They're just rejecting God. And again, they're living in the nature that they're supposed to be living in as unbelievers, as unregenerate people that hate God. So don't expect a difference. See, these young men offer great insight to us in how to live a godly life in a pagan world. If they were able to do it, so could we. We have, if you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you and you have the word of God that's always in your mind that if you're responsible and meditating on it and memorizing it, it will come to you and to your mind when you need it the most. This is the best example, the epitome of when Jesus commands his disciples to be wise as serpents and meek as doves. When you live in this world, then you, know, you need to know how to manage and how to live and at the same time stand for the truth. And we're going to learn a lot about this with Daniel and his friends in the next couple of chapters. You guys might be thinking, well, all the Judeans were idolaters and they all were bad and they were all paying for the rebellion. Well, not necessarily. In this case, remember that about 40 years before this exile, there was a great reformation under King Josiah. And when I say great reformation, King Josiah, he took away every single idol in that country. Destroyed it. Burned it. He brought the law of God. He celebrated the Passover again, which hadn't been celebrated in years. He had the people read the law of God. He brought reform. It's like a modern day saying a president comes into power and he says, sorry, marriage is only between male and female. Deal with it. Abortion, no legal, no nowhere not gonna happen deal with it you know man is a man woman's a woman deal with it oh all you all religions Jehovah's witnesses and mormons and seventh-day adventists and Muslims, sorry that's not gonna happen anymore this is gonna be the religion of the land that's the type of reformation that we're talking about here under josiah and i'm pretty sure that his parents these youths the youth's parents or grandparents were there during this time and while daniel and his friends are in this process of going to the palace, we know that they're men of women of, well, not women. We know that they're men of God. Why? Of how they're going to respond in the following chapters. And it only makes sense to know that they read their Bible. And what stories might have been on their mind as they're in this crisis while they're being captive. And while the king's official are coming and talking to them. What stories can you think of that might have been in their mind that they were meditating on and renewing their minds with? Joseph in Egypt. Who else? Moses in Egypt. Yes. You have two great examples. And they saw God's providence in Moses' life, in Joseph's life. And they could have said, my life is over. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be killed. This king wants me in his palace for what? Instead, they trusted. It was like, oh, maybe this is an opportunity for God to maintain his people and to give him a voice, which it was. They were. Daniel would be the voice to the Jews during exile. 
He would be prophet to the Jews and he would also be prophet to the Gentiles. And God is doing what at the same time? He's orchestrating all of this because he's always in control. This didn't happen by accident. He is sovereign over, your, over human history. He's sovereign over your life. Real quick, this is the kind of man that Josiah was, 2 Kings 23, 25. Before him, there was no king like him who, were, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So why would the king want these captives and future leaders to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans? Why? Well, literature can tell a lot about the current culture, so he wanted to make them easier for them to assimilate. As mentioned earlier, you will learn about their belief, customs, and, and morals through their religious text. Uh, learning the language was important because you were able to facilitate with King Nebuchadnezzar and his officials and the people that you were going to rule. But the main goal for his forced assimilation was because he wanted the transition from the others that were going to come. Remember, the, the Judean exile wasn't just a one-time event. It was a three-tier event. And he wanted to have leaders in place so when the others came, they saw, okay, he's not that bad. He's allowing us to live. He's allowing us to practice our culture as long as we pay our taxes. He wanted that assimilation to be easier for those that would come. Could be a secular way of looking at it, but who is ultimately in control? God. He was the one that allowed, put the idea in King Nebuchadnezzar's heart to have them come to the palace. See, God, he's a father, right? We, we have the, the, the illustration of father who disciplines his children. But he's still a father, so a father not only disciplines him, but he also loves his children while he's disciplining them. And what better way to love his children than to having his own people in high places in the kingdom that they were just being exiled into. God is orchestrating all of this. He's behind every single, single moment, single situation, because he's always in control in the past, today, and in the future. So we just went over the orders of assimilation, and now we're going to return to the benefits of assimilation. So those were the orders. Now let's look at the benefits of assimilation in verse 5. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. So we're going to look at three benefits of assimilation for these young Judeans. The first benefit is that they were going to get the king gave them choice food and from the wine that he drank. Choice food was the finest food of the land. No one ate or drank better than the king. And the king would want to have and give a portion to Daniel and his friends daily because two things. Number one, security, man. You're not going to hear, you're not going to starve. I know you just came from captivity. I'm going to take care of you. Number two, I want you to learn our culture and part of our culture is eating. Look at what we eat. This is, and learn how to eat or what we eat so you can, when you're talking to the Babylonians, you know how to act. The second benefit mentioned in the verse is education. Verse 5 states, and appointed that they should be educated three years. So they would receive free education from the best institutions that Babylon had to offer. And let me tell you, we've talked about this before. Babylon, they had a lot of advancement at that time. They had hanging gardens, meaning they had plumbing that would go up buildings to water these plants. So there was a lot to learn here in Babylon. And they were going to be 
receiving this education for free. And again, again, cultural simulation. You're going to learn about a lot of a culture based on how they educate the people. And not only were they going to see this education, they were going to do it for three years. Three years. I mean, think about it. You could be working in the land that you just got to, but you're here eating the king's food, drinking the king's wine, being educated in the king's best institutions. I mean, it could be worse, but it does get better for them. And, and I use this better because obviously you're a captive. You're better off in your home in Judea, in Judah, in the kingdom of Judah. But this is what the Lord had for them at this moment, at this time. And I can say technically better because it was God's perfect plan for them. God chose them to be there. And how does it get better? At the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. At the end of three years, they would be ready to enter the king's personal service. They would be ready to be appointed to govern, to represent the king. At this point, Daniel and his friends could have been discontent, could have said, oh, but I'm still not in Judah. And people in the, at the outside looking at them is like, what are, you, what are you saying? You're over there. We're over here. You're probably eating better than the poorest of the Chaldeans in this in this." empire but knowing how the story ends I know that they weren't doing that they were praising God in the midst of their difficulties they were praising God for him having favor giving them favor before the Babylonians while still being in captivity these young boys and later men as we will read were God-fearing men who always chose to honor God in good times and in bad times Lastly, let's move on to the last part of the Babylonian assimilation, the new identity. The new identity in verses 6 and 7. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. These would be the Judeans that would be placed by God himself to serve in the Babylonian empire. These were the relatives of the royal bloodlines or the sons of the ruling elite of Judah that were chosen by God to be the mouthpiece of God to the Jews and the Gentiles in Babylon. What were their names? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Just think about your circumstances for a second. Could God have others in your place right now? Yeah. But instead, think of your life moving forward this way. God chose whatever I'm living through right now. He chose my parents. He chose the church that I'm assisting. He chose the leaders, the youth leaders that I'm under. He chose the siblings, that I, the siblings that I currently have. He chose the financial situation that my family currently has. All that was chosen by God for you. 
If he wanted you with other parents, he would have given them to you. When you say, oh, I wish I had those parents because they were more lenient. If that was God's plan for your life, trust me, he would have done it because he's a good God. But in your case, it's your parents that God gave you. Those are your siblings that the Lord gives, has given you. The financial situation that he has allowed you to have, all that is God's providence and sovereignty over your life. And you have to start thinking like this daily. And you have to start focused and being content in what you have and where you are. Because God is perfect and holy and loving and there is no other way to explain it. And the more you try to rationalize it, the more you're going to be discontent, prideful, and angry. Especially prideful. I think I know better, God, of what I should be living through. No. Daniel, Hananiah... Azariah, Misha, they were like, we should have been, we should still be in Judah. We should still be with our families. That's what we think we should be, Lord. But the Lord is like, you don't understand. I know what's best for you. Because I want to take the glory. You just have to trust. After these men were chosen, something happened to them. What happened to them? Their names got changed, right? Daniel is now Belteshazzar, Hananiah is now Shadrach, Mishael is now Meshach, and Azariah is Abednego. Why do you think they changed their names? Anybody want to give it a shot? Yes. Yes, right? The, the more you call you by your Babylonian name, the more you'll be like, okay, I'm in this new culture, I'm in this new country, okay, that's, this is what's going to happen, I'm going to forget where I came from. But we know this is not the case for these young boys. Why? Because they were believers of Yahweh first. That so happened to now have a new Babylonian name. And this is not new, right? We have a lot of examples in the Bible where Joseph, his name was changed to an Egyptian name. And Esther was changed to Hadassah. And Paul's Greek name was Cephas. And, and Saul's Greek name was Paul. They didn't care what their name was. They, their hearts belonged to the Lord. Their identity was in Christ first. So, so, so comes to you. You are not an American who so happens to be Christian. You are not a male who so happens to be, a, you're not a male who so happens to be a Christian or a son who so happens to be a Christian or a student who so happens to be a Christian or a conservative Republican, an athlete. You're, you are, if you are in Christ, a Christian first who so happens to be and name your identity that you want, an American, a conservative male or female, your identity is doulos first, if you are in Christ. Son of God, slave of Christ. That is your identity. That so happens to be living in America. That so happens to be a father, a brother, a husband. The same thing here. They, they weren't phased by their name change because they knew who they were as believers in Yahweh. So they attempt, the intent of the Babylonian Empire was to brainwash the captives by changing their names, feeding them, educating them, and giving them a position of power in the monarchy. So what? So they can make the transition for the future ways of exiles easier. You can say it was smart, that the Babylonians knew what they were doing, but we can say that it was God orchestrating the whole thing from the beginning because nothing happens by accident. God is intentional and direct in everything that he does. This was God's plan to have Jewish leadership in power next to the king in a way to also keep this king in check. Because as we will see in a couple of chapters, this king will become the cow king. 
And he will bow his knee to the Lord. And he will have Daniel there to tell him. So how do we apply what we've learned today to our daily life? Number one. Praise God for his sovereignty. That a sovereign, loving, perfect God is orchestrating all around us. Good, bad, whatever you want to call it. He is orchestrating everything. He is in control of every second of your life. I mean, we, we should praise him that he's in control. Okay, just, just for a second, think, what if you actually, you yourself controlled your life? What would that look like if God wasn't there to keep you in check? We are very emotional beings, just letting you know right now. And if we were to live based on our emotions day to day, not a good thing. Thank the Lord that he is in control, that he directs our paths, and we don't. Once you understand this, life becomes much easier for you, and you are able to glorify God more each day because you know this is the perfect plan that you have for me, Lord. Let me be diligent and accepting of it so I can learn from what you're telling me to do, so I can be a better Christian for you and for the world. Number two, meditate on his sovereignty. Got to meditate on his attribute. This is a very important attribute to meditate on, of who God is. Every time you're about to let worry, discontentment, pride, think of God's sovereignty. We're very easy to look at the others of what they have and I don't. We're very easy to tell God, I think I should be living this way, not that way. We're very tempted to worry about, oh, I really don't think I can handle what God has given me. Your job is not to try to rationalize all of this. Your job is to trust in his sovereignty, in his power, and his control. Because he's in control, you can rest assured that whatever happens in your life is a gift from God to mold you according to his image. He is a loving God that is also in control when he disciplines you. Why is this important? Because God has promised that he's going to sanctify you. Look at what Philippians 1, 6 says. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. You will be sanctified. And we know that usually this sanctification comes through trials. And that's why James says in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let the endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But only when you meditate on God and these verses and in his sovereignty is when you will have peace during your trials. Like Dusty has said, stop praying away your trials. And start praying that the Lord gives you strength to endure for how long you have to endure it for. Because he's a good and loving father. And if that's what he has for your life right now then you accept it with gratitude because he is God and we are not. And if we can understand this concept and have it the majority of times in our life, it's hard, guys, it's hard. I'm not going to lie, it's hard. Life will go much easier to understand God's will. Lastly, take your faith seriously. Learn how to preach the gospel. Oh, but the test just happened yesterday. What am I going to do? I will test you whenever you want. I will, hey, Hondo, I, I want to see if this is how 
the gospel is being presented clearly and correct. Can you check it? Of course I will. We will do that. If you are in Christ, be serious about your faith. Oh, but I'm 13, 14. They were 13 and 14. And they were serious about their faith. To the point we're going to see next week. I don't want to ruin it for you guys. But these, these young men were strong in the Lord. And they only could be strong in the Lord because they had to know their Bible. And they had to be committed to the essentials. Learn about apologetics. Do it. How much time do we waste on other things that are not important? These are important things. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be re being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Know how to defend your faith with the word. Instead of saying, well, is me. I must sit through this evolution class or I must sit through all this ridicule and God, oh, why are you allowing this to happen? Say, thank you, Lord, for allowing me to be here so I can understand and learn how to counteract. Guys, Answers in Genesis is a great resource. Go there. Ask your parents to go, let you go there. And there's articles upon articles upon articles that you could use. Guys, our faith is not irrational. And even in our finite mind, things logically make sense. You got questions about, I don't know, dinosaurs, radioactive dating, carbon dating, ice age, cavemen, evolution, all these things. They're great articles that you can use and defend your faith against anybody that comes and asks. Now, obviously, the answers to these subjects, they won't save anybody from going to hell, but at least they give you an opportunity for the gospel. You will guide, you guys are, you're not too young to, be st to start being serious about this Christianity thing. You're not. If you are in Christ, God perfectly ordained that you would be saved at the age that you would be saved in. And if you are in Christ, reading the word is not an, op it's not an option not to do. You have to read your word if you are in Christ. You have to pray. You have to serve the Lord in his church. You have to fellowship with one another. You have to evangelize other people because these are the commandments that the Lord has given to those who call themselves Christians. And you're not alone. We live life together. That's the beauty of the Christian life, that we can do this together and encourage each other through the word together. And I pray that you can take your faith seriously like Daniel and his friends did. Amen? Let's pray. <sighs> Gracious God, uh, we just want to thank you for your sovereignty. Father, forgive us. Forgive us when we become worried and we don't trust you when we need to. And we're more discontent, Father, with, with the things that we don't have and Help us focus on the things that we do have because of your sovereign will. Father, I pray that we can always meditate on the sovereignty that you have over us, Lord. God, no matter what we think of what we think we need for our lives, help us always understand that your plan is better than ours. Help us, for those that are in Christ, to, to take our faith seriously, Lord. To be like Daniel and his friends, willing to stand in the fire, willing to die for you. But we know that we can only do this, Father, through the power of your spirit, through the power of your reading your word. Give us the conviction to read, to pray, to, to evangelize, to, to learn about apologetics and to learn about your word. And we know you can. 
And for those that are not in Christ, I pray, Lord, for those that are not in Christ here tonight, that they can bow their knee, that they can see themselves as sinners, and they can call out to you for salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.